During an interview with the New York Times, rapper Meek Mill said this about his experience in jail. Quote, when I finally went to jail, I already knew everybody. Everybody I went to school with was in the jail. End quote. How does this happen? It happens because of what is known as the school to prison nexus or pipeline. And the question that I have for you today, is the school to prison pipeline in operation in your district or school? If you want to find out the answer to this question, then you're in the right place. You're listening to the Racially Just Schools podcast, the show that provides resources to help you and your team build racially just schools. Hi, I'm Dr. Terrence L. Green. I'm a tenured education professor and I've helped to prepare hundreds of racially just and anti-racist school leaders. And I want to help you. That's why I created this podcast to provide you and your team with real world insights and practices that work so that you can collectively build racially just schools. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Morgan Craven. Morgan is the National Director of Policy, Advocacy, and Community Engagement at Intercultural Development Research Association, or IDRA, where she works to make schools community-led and community-sustaining. And she's been a strong advocate to radically disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline in Nexus. She holds a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. During our conversation, we talked about what exactly is the school to prison pipeline in Nexus. We also discuss what is it that we actually know from research about what happens when police are in schools. We also talked about how important it is to confront the racial myths about black and other racially minoritized youth in schools. And we also talked about what are some things that schools could start to do if they really wanted to dismantle and to undo the school to prison pipeline. And we discussed so, so much more. Before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by www.raciallyjustschools.com. And when you join our community today, I will send you a free video on how to make your racial justice work better. I'm excited about you joining the community and I look forward to meeting you. And now for today's episode, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. My name is Terrence L. Green, and I am super excited that you are here for today's episode. Now, before we go any further, I do want to tell you that today's episode is going to be fire. It really is, because we have an amazing guest in the building, the one and only Morgan Craven. Welcome to the Racially Just Schools podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm Excited to jump in um, because of again your your legal expertise and your your advocacy work that you've been doing, and I know you've done a lot of work and advocacy around um, the school to prison pipeline or what some folks would call the school to prison nexus. And you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about you know what it is, and so I'm curious, just so folks can enter into this conversation um, in, in similar pathways, kind of like just what is the school to prison pipeline? And then what are some of the ways in which it, it shows up every day um, in schools? Yeah, so I, 
I define the school to prison pipeline as a whole set of policies and practices and laws and beliefs about the way young people should behave and be punished in schools um, that serve to push these young people out of their classrooms and increase the likelihood that they'll be held back, that they won't graduate, and that they'll have contact with the juvenile and criminal legal systems. Um, And that push out has some common forms, including things like in-school and out-of-school suspensions, alternative school placements, expulsions, corporal punishment, and referrals to law enforcement in courts. Um, And we know that these methods of push-out really harm students. Um, They increase the likelihood of the outcomes I just mentioned, um, but they also have some really immediate harmful effects like missed classroom learning time, um, missed socialization opportunities with teachers and peers, um, feelings that the student is just not a part of the campus community. Um, In the cases of corporal punishment or when school police are called, there's real physical harm that can come to students from things like use of force or spanking or paddling or tasers or pepper spray. Um, And I would say the the thing to understand about the school to prison pipeline is that no matter where you are, what state or community you're in, there are a few things about, you know, these systems of exclusionary discipline and policing um, that, you know, everywhere, like every school, every state has in common. So first, um, these harmful approaches will disproportionately be used against black students and other students of color. Um, We know black boys are two to three times more likely than their peers to be suspended. Um, In one study, they lost almost five times more instructional days than their peers because of suspensions. They're more likely to have every form of police contact um, to experience corporal punishment. We know black girls are punished more than any other group of girls. Um, We know these types of punishments are used disproportionately against students with disabilities. Um, We know they're used disproportionately against LGBTQ students. Um, And we know that this is happening, you know, it's often about adult perceptions and adult biases and adults relying on this as a system of of how they interact with students. Um, And that is what leads to the disproportionalities, um, particularly for the more like vague subjective offenses like disorderly conduct. Um, And then the last thing we know is that these approaches are really, really ineffective. Um, They ignore any underlying needs that students may have that need to be addressed in a real supportive way. Uh, They harm students and prevent them from succeeding by nearly every measure. Um, They create these cultures of exclusion um, in school and model poor conflict resolution for all students. And they rob teachers of the opportunity to actually do what is effective in their classrooms. got me thinking about even your initial framing of this about how kids should behave and then when they deviate from this normed behavior the way the punishments should be enacted and it seems like for so long a lot of work in education has tried to change the behaviors of particular groups of, of children black and other students of color but focus less on like these systems and the policies and the expectations um, that create these conditions. Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. You, you got me wondering now, um, you know, you start to talk about some of the, the, the research and kind of like what we know. And it's like every time there is a mass shooting that, um, you know, reaches the public, in terms of you know television and is, is widely talked about, there's this knee-jerk reaction, like we need more police in schools. And so I think people have set up 
um, this causal link between if we have more police in schools, then there will be less exclusionary discipline or there will be more safety. Could you talk a little bit about like what do we actually know from research and empirically about the presence of police in schools and then the experiences and the outcomes of black and other students of color, which you mentioned a little bit? Yes, I I really um, like appreciate that setup of your question. There is this basic assumption that we are taught in nearly every context that po- more police equals more safety. And that is just like simply and provably not the case. Police should not be in schools. Police have no place in schools. We need police free schools. Like any way you cut it, like that is just what we know to be true. Um, and it's really that obvious if you just look at data about outcomes for students, um, about effects that law enforcement have on school climates. Um, so, so just to name a couple of those things that we know. So there was a study done about the increase of police in schools fi- following high profile incidents of school violence, like school shootings. Um, and the study, and this was, you know, looking at data across the country, the study found that the presence of police in schools um, had nothing to do with feelings of safety in the school or rates of crime or violence in the community. Um, rather, the most accurate predictor of the presence of police was the racial makeup of the school. The more students of color, the more likely the school was to have a police presence. Um, the next thing we know are that schools are generally safe places when we're talking about targeted school violence, like shootings. So I want to be really clear that there are different types of violence, obviously. But when we're talking about school shootings or other targeted school violence, schools are pretty safe. Shootings are actually very rare um, if you just look at the number of schools in this country and, and how often they occur. And I acknowledge that, you know, even if you can look at data and say, you know, school shootings are rare, they are so truly horrific and devastating when they happen um, that, you know, we have this, these sort of outsized feelings when they do occur. Um, And it's really that, that fear um, that I think leads to policies and practices that attempt to address targeted school violence, but are not actually rooted in research about what keeps schools safe. Um, So the next thing we know is that school-based police themselves can actually bring violence into a school setting. So these two different types of violence that I just mentioned, um, they, they themselves bring a type of violence. Um, they may not want to, some of them, they may not intend to, but they are using the tools that they have that they were trained to use to respond when they are called or when they see something happening. Um, and those tools can include use of force techniques like they would use you know, on adults on the street, mechanical restraints like handcuffs, Um, you know, where you and I are in Texas right now, police in schools can carry tasers and pepper spray, they can arrest students. Um, And that is a much more frequent type of violence that, that, you know, we also have to, to think about and consider how we address it. And I often hear people say, well, you know, police officers don't have to do those things to students. True enough. Um, And sometimes they're more like counselors to students, um, to which I say, if you want someone to counsel, students hire a counselor. Um, As of a couple of years ago, we know know that millions of children who attend public schools in this country attend schools where there are police officers in their schools, but there's not a single full-time counselor or social worker. And that's a really tragic educational environment that we're creating for them. 
And finally, what we know is that like when we actually talk to teachers and students, particularly teachers and students of color, they report that police don't make them feel more safe. They feel less safe. And we have to, you know, listen to them and what they're saying and trust that these are valid and important perspectives and craft our policies and, and practices around them. Um, and I, I guess that final point is what what always gets to me about, you know, these 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 types of violence in schools when a lot of people talk about school violence, they're thinking of targeted school violence. They're not thinking about the violence that has existed in many forms in schools for a very long time from which black students disproportionately suffer. And conversations that are truly about school safety really need to, to consider that. Could you spend, you know, briefly helping people understand how we got here with police being in schools like like what's the origin of it like what was it some a series of events was it um the policies that were laid out like how did the presence of police in schools become so normalized and so prevalent um today um there's a really um if you you know um have space to to drop links when you post this, I will share one. Um, there's a really incredible resource from a group called the Advancement Project that goes through the history of school policing in great detail. But I think sort of the major shift happened, um, you know, along the same time that people were talking about these ideas of like juvenile super predators, um, where they were really framing in really racist terms um, fears about young black people. Um, and if we don't crack down on them early, this will lead to a life of crime that we all have to deal with as a society. And so around the same time that you saw this general, um, sort of tightening of, um, and, and, you know, like harsher penalties, harsher approaches to people in, you know, the criminal legal system, um, you saw policies passing, including here in Texas at the exact same time that allowed police officers to be placed in schools. Um, I think that what, and, um, you know, I know your podcast is both national and international, so I'm sorry to keep focusing on Texas, but I'll just point out this last thing about um, the Texas Education Code, the chapter of the Education Code that focuses on discipline and policing um, is called Discipline, Law and Order. And I think that's so telling, right? It's not about like, how do we support students in schools and address their needs and acknowledge teacher bias and, and correct all of these things with research-based strategies. It is like, how are we controlling um, and injecting, you know, a form of criminalization into schools in the name of, you know, discipline and order. Um, so yeah, that's, that's not the best explanation of the full history, but I think it's such a critical point to understand the connection between, um, you know, criminalization in the larger world and what was done to, to children in schools. And we're still seeing the impacts of that. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned there is like this, these racialized, um, criminalizations that happen for, you know, black children, children of color. And like you said, at those intersections, uh, perceived notions of ability, uh, gender and gender identity. And I'm curious um, about your thoughts on this. One part of it is we know one of the ways that this these systems continue to perpetuate is through 
you know, racial myth making, right? Where people have assumptions, myths, and stereotypes, particularly uh, around uh, black kids. Um, and so one of the things I remember you saying, which I thought was was profound, somewhere I remember you saying that um, black kids are not more likely to misbehave. They are just more likely to be punished. And so I'm curious, could you talk a little bit about why it's important to debunk that racial myth um, about black kids being more likely to misbehave? Yes, I say that a lot because I know what happens when many people, including a lot of people who shape our education law and policies, I know what they're thinking when they hear statistics about exclusionary discipline policing. And again, like there are plenty of statistics about disproportionate disciplining and policing of Black students. And I know that when they hear that Black children are disproportionately punished, their immediate assumption is that Black children are disproportionately misbehaving. They assume there is a logical and right reason for students to be punished. And many people make that same assumption about adults accused of crimes. Um, You know, the accusation itself is proof of, of something that happened. Um, and I think those assumptions are just so deeply racist. Um, in some cases, I think that it assumes, a, you know, a genetic or cultural predisposition to misbehavior or criminality. Um, and that, yes, is on its face racist. And it, it ignores the bias of teachers and other adults in, in schools, which is well-researched at this point. It ignores the whole role of systemic racism and structural racism and unjust policies. Um, it ignores the needs of students, which I was talking about earlier, whether those are mental health needs or food and nutrition needs or academic frustration. Um, and so I think it's important to understand and explore what is truly happening in schools to shift the focus away from simply calling or labeling things as student misbehavior um, and understand why adults are punishing students and punishing some particularly black students disproportionately. And if we do that, um, I think it's important to do that because then we can think honestly about what solutions actually are to, you know, some sort of fundamental racial justice questions and educational access problems. Um, And then we can craft policies and practices or engage in litigation or remove teachers um, in a way that's actually responsive to what's truly going on um, instead of, you know, you know, the assumptions that some people automatically make about black children. Yeah. Thank you. No, that's, that's good. That's super helpful um, because that myth making uh, just seems to to permeate and continue, um, which becomes uh, part of of systems and structures continue to be you know racist. Um, I want to transition and talk a little bit about the possibilities um, and you know what districts, um, what schools, um, what states could think about doing um, instead of what they're currently doing around you know punitive discipline. And so one of the questions I have for you is something that I've I've noticed in multiple places um, is that districts will pass a policy to not suspend, um, you know, younger children, which they shouldn't have been suspending them in the first place. But they pass these policies that they're not going to suspend anymore. Um, but then when you go back into the school, they've suspended them. They just have them all down the hall somewhere in in-school suspension. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they are technically abiding by this policy, but the practice that was so ingrained and so default is still 
in place. And so my question to you is like, how might a district like radically rethink the way in which they engage with young people that is not exclusionary, that is not punitive, but really centers and honors their humanity and their dignity? Mm. Yeah, such a good question. I am constantly working to know the answer. So I usually, like when I think about how frustrated I am when I observe exactly what you're describing about, you know, you change one thing and then something else pops up. I really think of Jeff Goldblum's character from Jurassic Park when he says life, it finds a way, but it's just like bad ideas that hurt kids. They find a way that's not as fun as Jurassic Park, but that's like the sad reality of it. Right. Um, So I guess my answer is we need to do a couple of things. Um, I think like we were just talking about, we need to come to a collective agreement about what is actually going on here. And maybe we won't ever get there with all the people that need to be part of that agreement. But, you know, all of us that are working on this need to keep saying it out loud. This is what's happening. This is what's happening. Um, I think we need to examine data and the policies that are in place at all levels to identify the formal ways that the system is allowing these harms to happen um, and where they're concentrated. And, you know, we have to, you know, do our best to change those policies. Even when we know something else might pop up, I think pulling policy levers is, is a really important part, one component of this work. Um, and in doing that, try to anticipate, you know, sort of unintended consequences or other ways that, you know, things could be done. Um, I think we need to see what's happening outside of those rules, outside of the formal system and what's not being captured by data. And I think we do that by really developing authentic relationships with students and families um, so that they can report what's going on to them with them. Um, for example, like what you mentioned is what I call shadow discipline, um, where it's just off the books. Somebody is put out of class. We're not going to call it a suspension, but they're not in class. Um, and sometimes I even hear that pitch to parents where it's like, hey, um, why don't you just come pick up your kid? We won't call it a suspension. But that kid is missing out on all the same things that they would if they were suspended. They're having all the same trauma. Um, you know, you hear about, you know, schools using humiliation tactics on students, taking away resource recess. Um And these, you know, they're all really harmful elements of the system that are hurting children in, you know, many of the same ways, but are not reported in any consistent way in the data. So we really have to find ways um, to, whether it's using, you know, participatory action research, developing those um, community connections to really dig into like what's really happening in schools that we might not get a good picture of through more traditional means. And then last, I think we just need to, you know, really invest in what we know works. so much easier said than done, obviously, but there are research-based strategies to build relationships and resolve conflict. You know, some people, you know, use restorative practices. Some people really invest in social emotional learning strategies. I think we need to invest in diverse teachers, um, you know, training, recruiting, retaining them, um, diverse counselors and other staff, um, We need culturally sustaining curricula and instruction that makes students feel welcome at their schools. Um, And all of these are strategies that we know shift to school climate and equip adults to do something different. Um, And I know doing something different can be really scary or people say that, you know, 
well, this is what we've been doing. This is what I know to do. I have so many other things going on that I need to handle in schools. Like I can't do this, but this is a, this needs to be viewed as a foundational investment in, you know, protecting all students, protecting their civil rights, um, putting them in an environment where they can like grow and thrive and succeed in creating those, uh, those, you know, positive school climates that we want for all students. And then last, I just think that there's something to be said for letting go of people that cannot get on board with this plan. Um, you know, I, <laughs> we have a teacher shortage right now, so that's probably not going to happen. And that's a very serious problem. It's not always feasible, but like if somebody is not on board with this plan, there must be a way to really like capture that and say like, we, we cannot go on this way, you know? I'm not a school administrator, so I, you know, I'm talking about letting people go and I don't have that responsibility, but it's just really frustrating that, you know, a teacher could, or an educator or other staff member could like, you know, put up good numbers on one in, in one particular area, but then suspend kids all day long and nothing happens to them because we don't, you know, value that as a measure of a good adult in a system, but we must like, they, they just have to be about this, you know? Um, and about protecting all students. You know, I've, I've heard and I've seen some petitions about, you know, just um, getting rid of police and instead of having police to, um, you know, like we said before, have counselors, have mental health workers, have folks from community um, in schools that are supporting in, in very profound and, and powerful ways. And I'm curious, this is exciting. Right. The possibilities of this is very exciting. And I'm curious, are there places where this is emergent? Right. It, it may not be a finished product. I don't know if it can be a finished product, but are there places where some of these alternatives are emerging? And if so, um, are there any lessons um, that we can learn from the way that some of this work is um, being taken up? Yeah, I think there's some really cool national movements, the movement for police-free schools, um, counselors, not cops, that are being led by young people and families and other advocates. Um, I think part of the solution that, you know, these efforts have in common is that we have to, um, like we were saying before, absolutely invest in, like, practices, people, personnel, all peace, Um including, you know, diverse, well-trained counselors and other mental and behavioral health professionals, um, students and adults, I'll just note, adults too need access to those people and services in their school communities, especially as we deal with, you know, so many issues related to the pandemic. Um, but in addition to that and other strategies, you know, that I've, that I've mentioned, I think really authentic and thoughtful family and community engagement is critical. Um, a lot of schools do not do this well. And they don't do it in a meaningful way. Robocalls are not community engagement. Um, you know, occasionally tapping a parent to participate in one event is not community engagement. Um, and so I think, you know, in many cases, schools have not set up systems to reach and connect with all families, especially families of color and immigrant families and others. And so they miss these really important opportunities to involve those families in policy and practice decisions in their schools and make them a, a meaningful part of the community. Um, in terms of examples, I mean, you know, one really ex exciting example happened in Minneapolis. Um, for years, you know, families and students there had been pushing the school district to end its contract with a local law enforcement agency. That was about a million dollars. 
And they successfully did that in 2020. And from what I understand, part of the difficulty that many people felt there with that shift was that there just weren't alternative systems in place for schools to use once they could no longer rely on police. And I mean, in a in sort of a grand sense, I think that's a bit absurd. Like, just stop doing something that is bad. But it's a really common, you know, complaint. Like, what do we do instead? And that's why we have to. It's important to talk about the those um, strategies. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's really up to these school districts, up to all of us to reimagine what safety means, um, to think about like every single student in the building and what it means for them to feel safe and welcome and, and, and invest in what works. And I know we, we saw, you know, similar movements in Denver and Portland, um, also in 2020, really following the murder of, of George Floyd, um, so yeah, there, there. It's not without challenges, but there are places where you know some exciting work is happening to move away from what we know is really harmful for kids. If you thought of your life as a movie trailer, um, who would be some of the people, some of the experiences, and the institutions that were important to helping you get to where you are now in your professional career? Um, I love this question so much. I feel like, like every movie trailer, like it would start with a deep voice. It's like in a world where something happens. Um, but mine would probably start before I was born. Um, I was fortunate to have all four grandparents in my life for um, a really long time. Three of them were teachers for their careers. Um, and all of them were really focused on, one, the importance of education, and two, ideas about justice, particularly racial justice. So, for example, one of my grandfathers, the one who was not a teacher, um, would always ask, what have you done for Black people today, every time I saw him? Um, so my sisters, my cousins, and I all grew up with this like very basic assumption that we should do well in school, we should probably attend a lot of school, and we should do good things for Black people every day. Um, I guess the next part of my movie trailer, like obviously my parents were also influenced by that thinking of my grandparents and they just really continue to impress upon us the importance of education and justice. And I also think they tried to ensure that they were giving us sort of a healthy combination of understanding the realities of the world as they, you know, pertain to systems and racial inequities. Um, but also believing that, you know, we as individuals were smart and capable people who had the power to like change those systems. And that's a balance that I see myself trying to achieve with my my own kids now. And it's not always easy to to explain all of those things and make them work together. Um, and just in terms of experiences as part of my life movie trailer, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, and I left Georgia for college and law school and traveled abroad a bit, which I think was really important for just my understanding of how other people live and operate in the world. All types of people, like other people of color, really wealthy people, people living in really challenging conditions. Um, I was in a, I was in a learning session once where we had to explore like why we believe what we believe, why we learn in a certain way and what we were given that, that sort of shaped our worldview. And I think my parents encouraging me to leave Atlanta was really important for me. Um, and then finally, I think that my life recently has just been influenced um, by listening to, to really smart, alert young people, including my own kids, who don't really seem afraid of people and power, but are really aware um, of systems that influence their lives. And I can point to really concrete examples of how they have challenged my thinking and my work. 
um, and given me courage in times that I needed it. And then finally, this is a long movie trailer. No one's watching my movie, but <laughs> I just love this question so much. It made me really think. So finally, I, I, I just have an excellent small group of girlfriends, including my sisters who all operate in different professional spaces, but who offer support and guidance. And like even small things like a silly text chain on a hard day um, has had a real impact on my life. So that's my movie trailer. One of the ways we like to end the podcast is by asking our guests just a series of questions and whatever comes to your mind, um, you can just answer it. So these are little light, lighthearted questions just so the audience yes. can get to know you a little more. You ready? Excited. All right. All right. Here's the first question. The first question is, if there was a movie made about your life, who would you want to play you and why? Um. Like, obviously, Denzel, because he is the greatest. I think, <laughs> like, if he could play me, I mean, I think it would just seal the deal in terms of him being the greatest actor of all time. Can I tell you, once I did one of those um, celebrity lookalike apps mm-hmm. and I got Condoleezza Rice, which was very confusing for me. This is a podcast, but I don't, uh, to your audience, I don't look like her. So I don't know, though. Maybe she would play a good me. I don't think she's a good actor, though. Gotcha. Gotcha. Nice. Um, the next one is if you did not spend your career, you know, in policy advocacy, um, having a legal career, like what other career path um, interests you, what you possibly would have chosen? I wish I could be a detective. I really do. I think that like I have a very sometimes very logical brain um, and I like clues, which is an odd thing to say. But I think I would have liked to solve mysteries. Nice, nice, nice. Um, then the, the last question is, if you could only listen to, you know, three artists, it could be, you know, a solo artist, it could be a group, um, whomever you want it to be. If you could only listen to three people's or groups catalogs for the rest of your life forever, who would those three be and why? Um, this is obviously influenced by this moment in time, but I'm a big Silk Sonic fan right now. Um, I think I would probably add Bob Marley to the list. And I think I would, oh no, I forgot about Whitney for a second. Cause I was going to say outcast third. Um, if I had a, a fourth, um, I would like to include Whitney in that list, but I'm obviously violating the rules of this game. <laughs> It is all good. It is all good. Amazing list. Amazing list. Um, you know, before we end, um, is there a way that people um, can learn more about your work and even connect to some of the powerful advocacy work that you've been doing if they wanted to stay connected? Um, how could they do that? Yeah, I would love that. Um, I'm currently at an organization that I love called IDRA. Um, and so you can check out a lot of the work that we're doing at IDRA.org. Um, I am followable on Twitter. I am at Morgan I Craven on Twitter. Um, and I am happy to, you know, connect with anyone directly that wants to talk more about, you know, these issues that we discussed or any of the work that we're doing. I think that would be really exciting. And thank you, Terrence, for the excellent work that you're doing. This is wonderful. Well, well, thank you. That's what I was going to um, say as we transitioned out. So thank you so much for just taking the time to be on the podcast, but just the amazing work that you have done and you're continuing to do. 
Um, I greatly appreciate it. Um, you do powerful work. Folks notice it. I notice it. And it is actually making a difference in people's lives. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, that is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining the Just Schools podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I am so excited and really looking forward to our time together during future podcasts. What I need you to do is to please hit the subscribe button, share with a friend, and please leave a review. We love reviews. And if you want to hear more from me, you can head on over to www.raciallyjustschools.com. That is www.raciallyjustschools.com. When you join our community, I have a free video for you on three tips that will make your racial justice work better. And again, if you love the show, hit subscribe rate it and leave a review on itunes and until next time peace